Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything, from the streets to the peaks. DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. Now, I'm from Colorado, but I live in Massachusetts, so I travel back and forth pretty often, and I've used pretty much every type of bag, the hard shell ones, the soft ones. I've had the hard shell ones come back to me cracked, I've had the soft ones come back ripped, and I go back for the holidays a lot. And you come back from Christmas with extra stuff. So it's really nice to be able to um, add on So for when you have extra stuff. Now, we're teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on, time to get going. Now, welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. As always, it's great to see, to have you guys back. Now, um, every time that I look at my demographics and I see people from new places in the world that I've never seen people listening, I'm always really excited. I know I say it every single time. I never thought be anything other than my family listening. So I'm super um, happy and excited to be able to share this podcast with you. Um, I absolutely love that people keep joining us from all over the world. Um, I'm just happy to have you. So if you're new here, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining. If you're returning, thank you for coming back. And as always, um, we I love having you guys here so much. Um, there's a Patreon. The link will be down below. We have merch now. Um, the merch site will be down below. And we have officially launched. I have officially launched a YouTube channel. It has um, just more stupid crimes. It's not as, um, you know, official. We're not necessarily going over the psychology of stuff, more just talking about stupid and silly crimes. Eventually, we are going to do like a bracket style tournament where we're going to see if any of the states can uh, face off against Florida man for the dumbest criminals in the United States. And who knows, maybe we'll have an international tournament to see if Anybody can really, really compete against Florida man in the U.S. for the dumbest criminals in the world. So this week we're looking at part one of the Massachusetts drug lab scandal. Now, 
at the same time, two separate drug labs in Massachusetts had massive scandals having to do with their handling and testing of drugs. Now, the first one was in the Boston Drug Lab, and it has to do with unrequited love. Unrequited love is a universal experience which has been acknowledged and written about by poets for centuries. It has also been researched by social scientists. Roughly 98% of the population has been on either one or both sides of an unrequited love. In the simplest terms, unrequited love is any love that is not returned to the same degree with which it is given. Not surprisingly, it is particularly prevalent among the young. For college and high school students, unrequited love is four times more common than reciprocal love, according to a study by Bringle in 2013. To better understand how this type of relationship develops, Bringle and Associates identified five basic forms of unrequited love. One, a crush on someone who is unavailable. This form of love is most often a crush on someone like a movie star, a professional athlete, or anyone in the limelight, but not personally known by the person who is infatuated with them. Two, a crush on someone nearby without ever trying an, to initiate any romantic relationships. There may be a variety of reasons for the infatuated person to not express their feelings or attempt to initiate any romantic relationship. The reasons, justified or not, do not change the experience of frustration due to the unreturned love. A current example is seen in the contemporary Netflix show, Sex Education, in which a 16-year-old Otis falls in love with his high school friend, Mauve, but never reveals his feelings. Pursuing someone you've fallen in love with, or despite having rejected you as a romantic partner. I think this has happened to all of us. Um, you've pursued someone that you have feelings for, and you do tell them how you feel, and they reject you. Uh, for longing for a past partner. An individual might experience this type of frustrated love after a breakup, even if they know the other person wasn't a good match. Anthropologist Helen Fisher notes that one might be more attracted to a person who has left them. She calls this frustration attraction and associates it with continuing to pursue a relationship that has already ended. She has determined that being in love triggers the release of neurotransmitters dopamine and neurofedramine. Simply looking at a photo of your beloved one may trigger a similar release of dopamine, which is associated with pleasure. Five, an unequal love relationship in which the partners stay together, but love to different degrees or for different outcomes. Love for different outcomes may include a couple that makes a commitment based upon one feeling infatuation while the other feels the need for a fulfillment of security and stability. Maybe she simply wants to be in a relationship while he can't imagine his life without her, or he wants a good mother for his children while she thinks that he is her perfect soulmate. Now, Annie Duquesne was born Annie Sadia Khan to an Indo-Trinidadian family in the San Fernando of Trinidad and Tobago in 1977. She moved to the United States when she was a child and eventually became a citizen. Duquesne attended Regis College for two years before earning a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry from the University of Massachusetts at Boston in 2001. In 2010, a co-worker found Duquesne was, clean, was claiming on her resume that she had earned a master's from the University of Massachusetts, which is a little incomplete because UMass actually has multiple different satellite campuses. So when you put the University of Massachusetts 
on your resume you can't just say the university of massachusetts you have to put the university of massachusetts at which is true with many state schools you would have to put like university of colorado at so just putting the university of mass is clearly that would be a huge red flag during her time working at the hinton state laboratory duquesne also claimed to be attending night classes as part of a phd program at harvard wow that should have been a huge red flag too Duquesne did quality control for a vaccine maker near Boston, and no one in the lab worked harder. She was often the first to arrive in the morning and the last to leave at night. After hours, she also had been working toward a graduate degree in chemistry through a part-time program at Harvard University. As she confessed to college, she had dropped out of Harvard as an undergraduate years before for lack of money and switched to a state school. So earning a graduate degree from Harvard felt particularly sweet, especially when she finished in just a year. To celebrate, the lab threw a party and hung a banner that read, Congratulations, Annie. The only thing was, none of it was true. Duquesne had never taken a class at Harvard, graduate or otherwise. Harvard didn't even offer a part-time program in chemistry. Duquesne had made the whole thing up, a ploy for a promotion. Unfortunately for her, the gambit failed. The company declined to promote her. So in 2003, she resigned and took a new job at a state lab near Boston that tested drugs for court cases. At that point, Duquesne was 25, and she had already lied repeatedly about her qualifications and background. The state lab identified substances that police officers seized during drug raids and arrests. Since many drugs looked alike, often white or off-white powders, the police would drop the evidence off the lab so Duquesne and her colleagues could identify it, which they did through a series of tests. The first round of tests, called presumptive tests, told the analysts the general class of drugs they were dealing with. For example, one test involved formaldehyde and sulfuric acid to an unknown powder. If the sample turned reddish-purple, it was an opiate. If it turned burnt orange, an amphetamine. Other chemicals might turn drugs green or blue or get reactions that form distinctly shaped crystals. After the presumptive test, a chemist ran a second, a confirmatory test, to narrow things down to a specific drug instead of just a drug class. The confirmatory test involved taking a bit of the unknown sample, dissolving it in liquids such as ethanol, methanol, methylene chloride, and running a solution through a gas chromatography or a mess spectrometer. If the first test had indicated, say, that this was an opiate, the chemist would also run samples of known opiates, morphine, heroin, fentanyl, and the like, through the same analysis as controls. The machine then printed graphs for each individual sample. By comparing the graph from the unknown sample to the graphs from known samples, the chemist could identify the exact drug. Like many drug labs, the Boston lab was drowning in samples. But with Duquesne's arrival, things started looking up. She quickly distinguished herself, not only as a hardworking chemist, but the fastest. In her first year, she churned through 9,239 samples. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Okay, no. This is not like on TV. It's not something that's quick in, in, in a blink of an eye. It takes a minute. She was processing roughly three times what other the other nine chemists tests on average. Yes, should have been a red flag. Oh, no. Now, this in of itself should have been a red flag as drug testing doesn't work like on TV. You don't just drop the test tube in a machine and then minutes later, everything spits out of the printer. Like they told you before, you have to, like I, I explained before, you have to 
dissolve it in chemicals and then after you dissolve it in chemicals you have to compare it against a control sample this isn't like on tv where you drop it in your machine the machine spins it out and then the machine spits your samples out of a printer it does not work like that privately though annie was suffering in 2004 she met an engineer from her name trinidad and married him before long she was pregnant but the first pregnant ended in a miscarriage she later ended up having a second miscarriage. The losses devastated her and put a strain on her marriage. Rather than take time off to cope, Duquesne spent more time at the lab. I have chocolate and work, she told her boss. The year after the first miscarriage, she raced through 11,232 samples, almost double the second place chemist. Duquesne did eventually give birth to a son, but with disabilities. The demands of motherhood slowed her pace, but she continued to outperform everyone year after year. Gradually, though, her co-workers grew suspicious. A colleague once caught Duquesne using an uncalibrated scale, a serious breach since the difference between, say, 13.99 grams and 14 grams of heroin or cocaine could mean the difference between two years for possession and 14 to 28 years for possession with intent to traffic. Colleagues also noticed that despite all the tests Duquesne recorded, she never actually seemed to use her microscope, nor did she seem to generate hardly any trash. One presumptive test, called a crystal test, involved mixing an unknown drug with liquid on a glass slide. Crystals would form, and different drugs make different shaped crystals. Each test requires a clean glass slide to avoid contamination. So based on the number of tests run, chemists should be seen throwing away a certain number of slides per month. Duquesne's colleagues peeked into her trash bin and noticed that it was practically empty. Duquesne's colleagues were right to be suspicious, though. Although it's not clear when exactly she started, Duquesne was committing fraud on a massive scale. Instead of actually running tests, she was dry labbing the samples, simply glancing at them and guessing what they were. She got away with this because police officers usually submitted control cards alongside each sample, records that included their guess about the drug's identity. Jesus Christ. Just, oh, yeah, I'm guessing this is heroin. Like, the difference between someone being booked for cocaine and fentanyl is huge because fentanyl is such a harsher drug. That's just crazy. Duquesne could therefore simply glance at the card and say that that was her analysis. If the cop said it was heroin, it was heroin, and that was that. Duquesne always tested unknown samples, those lacking control card information, since she would be blindly guessing. And she didn't dry lab everything. She tested roughly one-fifth of her samples, just to make sure. But otherwise, she skipped the chemistry and rubber-stamped the police officer's assumptions to keep her numbers high. Equally as bad, she then signed certificates claiming she'd run the test. Because these certificates served as evidence in courtroom trials, she essentially perjured herself over and over. Even when Duquesne correctly guessed the drug's identity, she violated the suspect's right to due process. And unfortunately, she didn't always guess correctly. Again, there were two rounds of testing at the lab, and different chemists usually conducted each step. If Duquesne went first and the result of the second test contradicted her initial guess, a retest was conducted. But instead of admitting her mistake, Duquesne would sometimes sneak off, find a pure sample of the drug she had initially claimed, and submit that for retesting. And then presto, the second test now gave the correct result. In other words, she started forging evidence to cover her ass. 
As a result, innocent people were going to prison. One man was arrested with Incital, a white powder sold as a health supplement. Duquesne nailed him for cocaine possession. In another case, a man tried to pull a foolhardy scam and sell a piece of macadamia nut, claiming it was crack. The buyer turned out to be an undercover cop. Still, the suspect figured he'd go free. I mean, after all, it was just a nut. He then watched stunned as Duquesne swore in court to the contrary. I knew he was lying, he said. I, there is absolutely no way, ain't no way that a, a macadamia nut can turn into crack. Not everyone Duquesne lied about went to prison. Low-level drug offenders often did it, but drug convictions have consequences beyond prison terms. You can get deported or fired or kicked out of public housing. You can lose your driver's license or the right to see your children. And if you appear in court again, then you're a repeat offender. In the state of Massachusetts, even just an arrest can cost you your housing. So if you have Section 8 or you live in public housing and you get arrested, just that arrest can cost you your affordable housing. So why? It appears that for the last two to three years, prosecutor George Papakristos had direct personal communication with Duquesne, who was the chemist on some of his cases. This communication was highly unusual. So much so that even Duquesne's husband thought his wife was having an affair with him, and he tried contacting Papa Christos about the relationship numerous times. It also appears that Duquesne tried to get cases from the jurisdiction where Papa Christos prosecuted and likely even performed favors for their jurisdiction specifically. But before we get more into that relationship, I just wanted to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released, and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. Now, like I said before, I'm from Colorado, I live in Massachusetts, I travel back and forth, so it's nice to be able to attach products and to make the bags bigger or smaller. We are teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on, it's time to get going. Now, the tone in dozens of the emails between the two was sometimes too familiar, according to uh, one person who has read them. Duquesne opened up about her life, confiding in one email that she was unhappy in her marriage, though it is unclear from printouts of the emails whether she actually sent that particular email. On another occasion, Papa Christos reminded her that their relationship was supposed to be strictly professional, in response to something that Duquesne had been writing to him about. The correspondence, which dates back to 2009, was unusual enough that state police investigating the drug lab misconduct um, interviewed Papa Christos about the relationship. Lab protocols for prosecutors and communications through the lab supervisors um, dictates that they're to avoid any questions about integrity of drug evidence, something Duquesne has acknowledged she should have done. 
Chemists aren't supposed to be doing favors on a case-by-case basis for a particular police officer or prosecutor, stated Matthew R. Siegel, legal director of the ACLU Foundation of Massachusetts. That is a rule, no matter who the chemist is. Duquesne wrote emails and spoke on the phone with other prosecutors, um, but the correspondence with Papa Christos stood out. In the emails, Duquesne sent Papa Christos chatting messages punctuated by exclamation points, according to someone involved in the investigation who has read all of the messages. There's no suggestion in the correspondence that he asked her to alter results or provide favors, but Duquesne had a reputation in the lab for being especially close to the Norfolk prosecutors. Gloria Phillips, an evidence officer, told police that Duquesne always wanted Norfolk County cases especially uh, to analyze. Duquesne appeared to be doing favors for Norfolk law enforcement officials when she was caught in June 2011 taking evidence from 60 Norfolk drug cases out of a storage area without authorization. Her former supervisor, Elizabeth O'Brien, told state police Duquesne had taken cases out of order and did not send them out as required. Duquesne's co-workers told state police that she was going through a long divorce from her husband, though the two were still living together at the time. O'Brien added that Duquesne was going through personal problems. In summer of 2009, Papa Christos told Duquesne with some alarm that her husband had tried to contact him repeatedly, though he never spoke to him. I have to tell my bosses, Papa Christos told Duquesne, tell him to stop calling me. However, Morrissey t- said Papa Christos raised concerns to his supervisor at least once about an email he received from Duquesne. Duquesne and Papa Christos continued to correspond for two years after that, including for five months after June 2011 when du- Duquesne's supervisors say they removed her from doing drug analysis because of questions about her handling of evidence. At one point, Papa Christos asked Duquesne how she likes her promotion, apparently unaware that she's been removed from drug analysis because of questions of her integrity. Later on in the year, Duquesne asked Papa Christos about his Thanksgiving plans. Duquesne stressed that she worked alone and no prosecutors urged her to break any rules. Nonetheless, Siegel said Duquesne's direct contact with prosecutors without following proper protocols should be grounds for dismissal of all the cases, suggesting prosecutors knew that what she would do, that she would do what they wanted and give them the evidence they needed for their convictions without asking. Would they have called her if they had any doubt about what her answer would be? She reportedly was the only person in the lab who would take calls from prosecutors and police. It's just like on TV. Everyone else says, I can't get you that result right day, right away. There's a procedure. And she's that one person who's like, I can get those results for you right away. The reason was she was making the results up. The Norfolk County prosecutor who carried on an unusual and sometimes personal email correspondence, um, Papa Christos, eventually ended up resigning, saying that he did not want to be a further distraction from the investigation into criminal misconduct. In June 2011, an evidence officer at the lab discovered that Duquesne had tested 95 samples without properly signing them out. Further investigation revealed that she had forged the initials of a different evidence officer in her logbook. She was suspended immediately from lab duties. However, she was still allowed to continue to testify until February 2012, 
when district attorneys throughout the Boston area were noticed of the breach of protocol, and Duquesne was placed on administrative leave. She resigned in March 2012. In a cost-cutting move, the Massachusetts General Court transferred control of the lab to the Massachusetts State Police Forensics Unit. The state police were the ones who mounted the probe into Duquesne's case. The probe revealed Duquesne's superiors had ignored massive red flags surrounding her much before 2011. For instance, she reportedly tested over 500 samples per month, five times the normal average, even though her supervisors and colleagues claimed to have never seen her in front of a microscope, and that she frequently misidentified samples. Additionally, Duquesne's productivity remained steady even after the Supreme Court ruled that chemists who perform drug tests in criminal cases can be subpoenaed to testify in person. According to an independent data analysis, Duquesne's turnaround times for tests actually dropped from 2009 to 2011. The problem was severe enough that Governor, at the time, Deval Patrick, ordered the lab shut down. In August, police interviewed Duquesne at her home where she admitted to altering and faking test results in order to cover up her frequent dry labbing or visually identifying samples without actually testing them. She even went so far as to add cocaine samples in when there was no cocaine present. So she just straight up framed people. She didn't care. She didn't give no fuck. She said she'd been dry labbing for three years. At one point, she broke down and said, I messed up. I messed up bad. I don't want the lab to get in trouble. On September 28, 2012, Duquesne was arrested and charged with obstruction of justice and falsification of academic records. The later charge became because she claimed both on her resume and in sworn testimony to have a master's degree in chemistry from the University of Massachusetts, Boston. However, school officials revealed that Duquesne had no such degree and had never taken any master's level classes. On December 17th, Duquesne was formally arraigned on 27 charges, 17 counts of obstruction of justice, 18 counts of tampering with evidence, and one count of perjury and falsification of records. Prosecutors allege that whenever a second test failed to confirm the initial results, Duquesne would tamper with the vials to make them consistent with the inaccurate results obtained by her dry labbing. She was also charged with falsely certifying results that she knew would be compromised. These certifications were admitted as evidence into court. On November 22, 2013, Duquesne was sentenced to three to five years imprisonment and two years probation by Judge Carol S. Ball in Suffolk Superior Court after pleading guilty to crimes relating to falsifying drug tests. This was greater than the one-year sentence her defense requested, but less than the five to seven-year sentence she was facing. However, Ball said that upward departure was merited due to the ramifications of Duquesne's misconduct. Ball wrote, Innocent people were incarcerated. Guilty people have been released to further endanger the public. Millions and millions of public dollars are being expanded to deal with the chaos Miss Duquesne created, and the integrity of the criminal justice system has been shaken to the core. Duquesne served her sentence at Massachusetts Correctional Institute in Framingham. She was released in April 2016, granted parole. This whole case led to a mass dismissal of wrongful convictions, the biggest ever. Um, prosecutors in seven Massachusetts counties dropped more than 20 uh, total to this date. 
Uh, they dropped a total of 21,332 cases. They were low-level drug cases tainted by anti-Ducane. After all was said and done, only 320 cases were left standing. Currently on the mass.gov website, there is a section specifically for this case. Um, you, uh, if you believe that you are affected by it, um, you can reach out uh, to see how to uh, get um, so that you can file for restitution if you believe that you were affected by it. I mean, obviously you can't, it's too late to file for an appeal to get your case overturned. That time frame has passed, but you can file to join a class action lawsuit that is ongoing. And there's also a list because when it comes to low level drug charges, you may have already done your time, but your sentence may have been overturned or thrown out. So there is a list on the website. I'm actually going to put that link down below uh, for the website so that if you live in Massachusetts and you've had uh, any uh, drug possession charges so that you can see you are a loved one if you were affected by this case. Um, this actually affects me because I worked as a substance abuse counselor and interventionist and I actually had several clients who did have their cases thrown out. So I've seen it affect people firsthand. Um, now, if you want to join me next week, we're going to look at the second part, which is the Amherst drug scandal, something very similar, but for a very different reason. Um, so... <laughs> And it, like I said, they happen at the same time. So virtually the same time in Massachusetts, two different drug labs in the same state at virtually the same time um, were having massive scandals. So if you join me next week and when we touch the Amherst part of this, of this scandal. And in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.